Baby boomers. I used to be with it. Millennials. Okay, boomer. Generation X. What's going on? And Gen Z. <laughs> what do they have in common? Not a lot, it turns out. But one thing they can agree on is that this is the political podcast they want to listen to. Welcome to Not My Generation, the political podcast that looks at political events, news and happenings across the world and at home through a generational lens. Your hosts are Dr. Emily Stacy and Professor James Davenport, two political scientists from Rose State College. But the views expressed on this program are solely the views of the host and their guests and do not reflect the views of Rose State College, its administration, faculty, or students. Coming up on today's program, today, I'm talking in like slow motion. Shout out to Theta Scotch Paul for not giving me, you know, the restraining order. What was the context of this remark? How did it come up? And that listeners was James Davenport's rant of the day. <laughs> and now here are James and Emily. Hello, Emily. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm fantastic. We are getting to the end of the year. Yes, there, yes. There are lights everywhere. It is very, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a December baby, so it's, I don't know, it's just my time of year. I don't like the heat, and I very much dislike how we don't have a fall anymore. Um, and so it goes from 80 to like 30. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very happy now wallowing in the rain and the darkness. So we're good. <laughs> Uh, I have a question for you. Actually, I have two questions all for right. you. Um, I love this. First of all, um, what do you ever listen to our podcast after we record them like episodes and such? You do know you? I loathe myself, so no, absolutely okay. not. Well, you should because you do fantastic. Oh, well, Let me thank just you. say, appreciate you that. are amazing. Aww. So That's very, very uh, kind of you. But I listen because I'm, you know, I listen to a ton of podcasts uh, and I'm always trying to say, okay, how can we improve? How can sure. I improve? Absolutely. And I will tell you, if it sounds like today I'm talking in like slow motion, it's because when I listen to myself, I talk way too fast. Do we talk like chipmunks? No, but I just, I talk really fast. And as a result of that, I have a lot of these pauses where you go, um, um, and sometimes it can be really distracting. So I'm trying to work on that. So if it sounds like I am slowing down, it's not because of my age. It's because I'm trying to, you know, eliminate some of that. My, uh, my sister is a speech and debate coach in Texas, in Texas public schools. And you can imagine the kind of grief she gives me over that kind of stuff. And, yeah. uh, and this is a shout out to Melissa Witt. Uh, she's actually going to be in town today. And uh, she, she absolutely is fantastic. She's phenomenal at her job. She has developed uh, an amazing reputation for what she does in Texas public schools with speech and debate. So shout out to her. Second question. I've been listening to a podcast. There's a, there is a, an economist from George Mason University, mm -hmm. uh, Tyler Cowan, that I follow, yeah. and he just wrote a book uh, on who was the greatest economist of all time. Mm -hmm. And it got me thinking, who's the greatest political scientist of all time? Oh. Who would that be? Wow. I mean, I think it depends on what genre, right? What subfield or field of political science, uh -huh. or, right? Um, I mean, my personal favorite is 
the theta scotch pole, right? Okay. So in, in terms sure. of comparative theory, right. Right. and you know, at one point at an MPSA conference, I totally tried to fangirl her um, and like stalked her around a, a hotel in Chicago. Anyway, shout out to Theta Scotch Ball for not giving me, you know, the restraining order. Yeah. <laughs> like she's so, I mean, she's just everything in terms of social movement theory and kind of, um, you know, the way we look at mobilization. It, it, she was a seminal part of my, both my master's thesis and my, sure. my doctoral thesis. So, you know, I was thinking of two as I come in and then their names just escaped me, but I've cited both of them in my dis, in my yeah. dissertation work uh, and uh, on because they had done research specifically in the area of relationships among legislators. Exactly. The, the You probably know this, the famous paper uh, and, and book eventually on um, uh, relationships, between, what was the name of that? Oh, the Electoral Connection, right? Oh, so yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember his name, but very famous one. And then another one came out by another political scientist roughly at the same time, uh, Congress and committees. And so mm-hmm. it talks about these relationships. So, but it just got me thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to send you the criteria he uses yeah. to, to identify the greatest yeah. economist. And basically he had three kind of, um, early ones. So, and then he has three more kind of like 19th, 20th century yeah. folks. And maybe we can come up with a Let's criteria that, and then I can, talk yeah. about who we would, and, who would put up there. And I think that we I for sure am probably more interdisciplinary maybe than and more Americanist maybe. Um, and so people like Manuel Castells are hugely important, kind of political sociology, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, let's do that. That sounds fun. Let's, let's, I like let's that. think about that. All right. A um, couple of news of the day that I want to get to before we get to our fantastic guest yeah, today. Really we are excited to have Carmen Foreman with Oklahoma Voice. Uh, on with us today, and this is going to be a fun, uh, hopefully wide ranging. She lets conversation. me text her. I, I can't believe, right? I love, I love, I love it. I love yes. the text. <laughs> Makes me happy anytime. <laughs> anytime you know somebody in, in that line, it was like I know a celebrity. You know, right? right? So yes, um, but um, just saw on the news today coming in. Uh, former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor passed away. Oh man, I didn't even see that. Yes, uh, Lord. first. First female justice oh. on the court, uh, appointed by Reagan, I think in 83, 84, yeah. I can't remember, yeah. but right around that right. time. Uh, and a very interesting political figure in and of herself. So, yes, yeah, saw that she passed away today. Between she and Feinstein, that's kind of a gut punch. Yeah, to that, that, that generation. Those of, of us women. that, uh, you know, uh, grew up in the, I grew up really in the eighties and, and I remember her appointment, uh, very fondly. And, and so just thought that was interesting. Also of note, uh, one of the major, uh, Republican aligned, uh, organiz- advocacy organizations, yes. Americans for Prosperity mm-hmm. announced that they were endorsing Nikki Haley for, uh, president. And so, this is going to be an interesting play. I know DeSantis was expecting their endorsement, and he is he and his campaign are none too happy. I just I can't imagine why he was holding his breath again. We have we've had this conversation, right? Mm-hmm. If you are running as Diet Trump, and the Cokes explicitly blackballed Trump, why would you think 
I, I can't imagine why he was holding his breath. It's cute. Um, <laughs> they were looking for anybody else besides those two. I have been calling Nikki Haley. My students know, in fact, whenever she left the Trump administration, man, that's a cherry position. When you get you an ambassador, I mean, that is a cherry position. When you deuce out two years into that, I mean, I thought she was going to run against him, in fact, uh, in 2020, but she held her breath and waited. Um, this is this is her time. And I think, again, I've said it before on this podcast, and I'll say it again, with the abortion issue running this, this next election being so at the forefront, she is in a unique position she as a Republican. In the debates up to this point, she has really kind of moderated yes. on on that mm-hmm. position and, and articulated a, a position of, look, we we might be carrying this too far. Maybe we need to, to slow down. Uh, and it's been put back to the states. Let the states deal with it. We, we should be done with that, right? Very interesting. So it's going to be very, very uh, interesting. I just, I still have trouble seeing the path to taking over Trump yeah. in in the primaries. The the polling right now does not indicate anybody's got a great shot of doing that. Now, did she, I think she just now reached about what, 19, 20%, just barely. That's correct. That's correct. Now, you know, there's a lot of time still left before primaries and people start voting. The the AFP is going to bring money and volunteers to her, aid her campaign. Of course they are. So that's going to be something that's going to be helpful, extremely helpful. So, uh, yes, in terms it's going to be interesting to see how this, this plays out, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think what Haley would like to do, I'm certain what folks who are like Coke and others who do not want Trump to be the nominee, I think what they're hoping is they can kind of deliver maybe a knockout punch to the other folks in the primaries and get a one-on-one with Trump. I agree. Uh, quickly. We will see. Before, right. I mean, as quickly as possible. Correct. And I think you and I kind of have pontificated that DeSantis is probably done by January. I can't imagine them going into the next debate in January, February with more than three of those people on stage. Um, It's uh, the money machine is uh, when the Cokes back you, it's it's on. It is on. That's right. Right. That's right. So we're going to bring Carmen to the conversation, right? Because I'm dying to. Can we can we preface this with uh, we went to an event last night? Let's can we can we start there before we right before we like get into, you know, the good stuff. so we went to an event last night uh, hosted by our good friend Andy Moore uh, and his colleague, Let's Fix This, and their podcast, uh, Let's Pod This. We uh, absolutely adore uh, their work. They do wonderful things uh, as uh, talking about civic advocacy, keeping up with what's going on at the Capitol, different reforms. Um, they're very plugged in. Um, so shout out to them. We love them. Need to do. In fact, I texted him this morning about perhaps doing a crossover episode, right? How can oh, we, right? that's a good idea. Anyway, you know, man. That's a really good it's idea. That's my millennialness. Um, so anyway, they were hosting an event at Factory Obscura uh, for their 250th episode, which I'm jealous of. We'll get there eventually, podcaster or podcast listeners, right? Um, but they featured Leslie Osborne and Senator Julia Kurt. And I thought, um, you know, Labor Commissioner Osborne is a very interesting figure yes. within Oklahoma politics, particularly um, as a Republican woman right now uh, and is positioning herself um, as such, right? In sort of a Nikki Hayes. Esque type of way. In 
fact, she mentioned uh, reproductive rights last night, uh, which was interesting. Not the shock factor. I'm getting, you know, hang on, we're getting there. Um, she did say some very interesting things uh, last night. And I know my colleague, uh, James Davenport, has some things to say, but I want to get uh, Carmen's shock factor uh, reaction because um, Leslie Osborne last night in Soundbite of the Decade, for me anyway, um, I melted into the floor, uh, noted that she, quote, uh, worships brown Jesus uh, with long hair, that face, um, instead of, quote, uh, I believe it was white crew cut. Um, I think that's Jesus, like that, right? unquote. Yeah. And I think I melted into the floor factor. I'm like parts of my DNA are still infused into the floor factor. Obscure comments, Carmen. Well, uh, what was the context of this remark? What, uh, how did it come up? Well, she was discussing kind of the direction that Republican politics have been taking. At one point, she makes this line, which I've heard her say before, that too many. Uh, People in the legislature are too concerned about saving your soul other than, yes. you know, delivering good government. And so it was in that vein that this this kind of comment came up. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, I think she is is certainly positioning herself as I am in some ways a traditional Republican. Mm -hmm. right? I, I'm a, a Reagan Republican uh, that wants limited government, but government that delivers on what it should be delivering on. Right. I don't want to be caught up in all of this culture war stuff. And she's really kind of trying to lead, I don't want to say an insurrection inside the it Oklahoma really Republican does. Party, no, but it gets, you yes. feels that way a yes, little bit. Does. Yes. She's trying to like force it to moderate. Right. I don't know if that's possible yeah. in this day and age. No, and I don't know if that. she has much of an impact within her own party. Right. I do think she was uh, marginal. I mean, and we talked about this before we came on air. She had been the House uh, chair of the House Appropriations and Budget Committee when we were dealing with massive shortfalls towards the end of the Mary Fallon uh, administration. And there were a bunch of Republicans saying what we need to do is cut and, and cut more. And she was on that that chairing that committee. And she was like, there's nothing else left to cut. Right. And we're going to have to raise taxes. And eventually she gets removed from that mm -hmm. position, right? The leadership yeah. yanked her. Yeah. And it's not long after that that she announces she's going to run for labor commissioner. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, she's kind of been on, she is definitely on the outside now. Whereas as chair of the A&B committee, you are on the inside. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? So I was actually in the press room um, whenever she came in with the red wave in 2010. And so Leslie Osborne came in as extraordinarily conservative, right? And I remember her little headband. She's, I mean, she's made... The, the progression of Leslie Osborne should be a study um, in terms of her politics, her style. I mean, just all of it is really, really fascinating. Um, she she floors me. Um, I am I'm waiting the announcement. Right. Um, it's right, Carmen. Yeah. I mean, we talked about before this podcast started, whether Leslie Osborne's going to run for governor. And I think what James said before before the podcast started is the key question is if she runs, would she run as a Republican or a Democrat? I think, it, I think it depends on what Drummond is running as. Yeah. Well, I assume Drummond would run as a Republican, but I don't know. Maybe. Uh, well, is he going to take a page out of Joy Hoffmeister's playbook too? Well, so, it's so interesting stuff. So this gets me back to the poor condition of the Democrat Party oh, in Oklahoma, forever. when we're talking about 
who's going to run for governor as a Democrat? And we're pulling up Republicans. Yeah, absolutely. And right. not not any Democratic names. No Democratic <laughs> names. I don't have anybody. Joy Hoffmeister and uh, and then now we maybe Leslie Osborne, maybe Gentner Drummond. I mean, who knows, right? But but the reality is, if you just look at registration. Yeah. Running as a Republican gives you a lot more advantages starting off than running as a Democrat in this state. But if you want to get to the general election, you might consider running as a Democrat, right? Because the competition is going to be much less. Moderate Republicans just don't stand a chance in primaries anymore. In primaries in in Oklahoma, they don't. Uh, What is fascinating to me, you youngsters may not remember this, but there was a time when this state was dominated by Democrats, much as heavily as it is dominated by Republicans today. And so all the stuff that we're talking about Democrats today, I remember my parents and and people that that were a little bit older than me talking the same way about Republicans. If if I want to vote, I need to register as Democrat because there's no Republicans running for this or that. Or so it's just amazing how much this has flipped. I anticipate in 20 or 30 years. I don't think the pendulum is ever going to swing back all the way to Democrat dominance like it was, but I think we're going to swing back closer to the middle. And, and that'll be interesting to watch and see how that's dealt with as well. I agree. Yeah. I agree. All right. So before we get into stories and ideas. Are we going to actually like talk to Carmen? Yes. I, Carmen, I want you to just give us a little bit about your background. How did you get to be this, this, World famous journalist from Oklahoma who uh, who we follow closely and who uh, is very active in in, in tracking and, and reporting on Oklahoma politics. How did you get here? Um, I don't know about world famous, but I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so I was born and raised in Norman. Um, went to OU. Um, I worked on like my high school student newspaper. Um, and I think that's kind of where I got into journalism a little bit. Um, Which high school? At Norman North. Oh, no. Okay. Wait a minute. Okay. So, of course, you listeners Go Timberwolves. know. Timberwolves. Right, no, no, ma'am. Um, <laughs> you, you know, the uh, name of our podcast is Not My Generation. So, I'm so Norman North tells me that you're way younger than I am. Um, Oh, that's painful. Um, so what year? What uh, class of twenty ten? So yeah, young. Okay, so we're West Side OG, right? Um, class of two thousand three. So that's a little painful. Um, but it's okay, right? We're still within the millennial esque. Well, and it's are funny, you technically a millennial? I'm a millennial, yeah. Right, but you're not a geriatric one like me. Okay. No, fair no. enough. Fair enough. But it is funny because it's such a horrible label. I I know it's the internet. Don't that. blame me. It's the internet. I prefer elder. Um, I did grow up much closer to like physically distance wise to Norman High, but then they shipped us across the town. You know, silly. We love it. Um, So I think y'all appreciate this. So my mom uh, was a political science professor. And then my dad, um, he used to be a law professor at OU. But then before that, when they met, they met in D.C. He was working on the Hill. And so as I was growing up, we would always have these. um, Well, it was like standard practice. My parents would watch the evening news at 530 and then we'd eat dinner and we'd talk about the news. 
And so we were always having these political conversations at home as I was growing up. And I think that's kind of where I got my spark of like, I'm interested in this. And I did like speech and debate in high school. And I was like, maybe I'll go to law school. Maybe I'll be a lawyer. And then it flipped. And now I'm in journalism. Fabulous. Yeah. So um, and after I graduated OU, I worked, um, I desperately wanted to get out of the state for a bit. That, that'll that do that all? to you when you yes, go to college sure. in your hometown. Yes, absolutely. And so I lived in Virginia for a while, covered politics there, lived in Phoenix for a while, covered politics there, and then eventually moved back. So you kind of are world famous, just yeah, a little bit. A little bit. I kind of fell in love with you just a little bit more to learn like all about that background. That's and, fabulous. And you've, you've worked for some different uh, outlets yes. here in Oklahoma, right? So tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So, so I worked for the Oklahoman for almost four years and then briefly worked for the Tulsa world, um, same job at most places covering the state capitol, the governor, um, Oklahoma legislature, all that. And now I work for a new publication called Oklahoma Voice, which some of your listeners may not have heard of. Yes, please tell them. It's fabulous. Uh, so Oklahoma Voice, we're a nonprofit news outlet. Um, we're new. Um, we're relatively small. We only have a staff of four. Uh, but our goal is to basically do daily coverage of state government and state politics. And the best part is it's free. It's free to yes. read and um, there's no paywalls. We don't have advertisers. We're a nonprofit. So we do accept contributions. But, um, you know, it's it's. It's an affiliate of a national group called States Newsroom, which has about 40 newsrooms in capital cities across the state, uh, across the country. And they're all trying to cover, you know, do a better job of keeping an eye on state government, state politics. And and I think the idea is kind of born out of, you know, as newspapers have been shrinking over the years, we need more eyes on what our leaders in power are doing. And we can't put all of that coverage behind a paywall because then only those who have the means to afford it can read about it or stay up on what is happening, you know, up, up at the state capitol. Yeah, absolutely. Press corps, capital press corps particularly are a dying thing um, and have been over the, the 21st century. This has been reported over and over and over. Um, and so what you guys are doing is such such an awesome thing. Um, also, it's unique in the fact that it is for ladies running it, correct? Yeah. It's, this is it's, so cool. And it, we didn't go into it. Like our yeah, my yeah. editor, Janelle, yeah. um, she hired three reporters yeah. and she didn't go into it sure. saying, I want to hire all women. Right. But it just happened. In that way. Which is really cool. And it provides a unique voice, I think, um, that is necessary, desperately necessary in any industry, but certainly um, journalism and political media specifically. And so I really wanted to point that out and give a shout out to you guys. I love, love what you guys do. Well, thank well, you. And one of the things I have pre- appreciated about it is uh, you're fairly balanced in yes. how you oh, present yeah. information and, and how you provide information. I know uh, you allow people to sometimes submit commentaries and such, and those have been all over the place. Mm-hmm. And so I've really appreciated that that aspect of it as well. Uh, and might have to submit some. I was going to say you know, he's going to ask for. Yeah. A, I, I might. <laughs> he's going to ask know. for byline. <laughs> you are welcome to submit. I think we'd probably run them. So. <laughs> but uh, so. What is the 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 niche that Oklahoma Voice is trying to fill? What is what is lacking that you're like we can step in here and we can 
uh, fill a gap or a need that's that's there? Yeah. So great question, because we do have several uh, other journalism nonprofits here in the state and they do great work and we're not trying to like push them out or duplicate what they do. But the fact of the matter is that publications like Oklahoma Watch and The Frontier, they tend to do long form investigative work and th- their reporters may spend weeks or months working on the same story and not have a lot of daily coverage or or in sometimes any daily coverage. And we feel that, you know, you still need, readers need a daily view of what's happening at the state capitol. And, you know, we try to do it a little bit differently. We try to, you know, focus on the impacts that legislation or policies or um, proposals have on the general populace. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we don't want to just gloss over the news that's happening every day and focus on, you know, the big fish, the big investigative stories. And and we do some investigative work, but it's more like quick turn, mm-hmm. um, you know, some records requests, but we're not going to spend, you know, months on a, a sure. on a giant yeah. story. Yeah. That I don't, I think people don't appreciate how much time it takes to do that kind of investigative yes. reporting. Yes. Right? And we're, we're lucky that we have yes, news outlets absolutely. that focus on that. Right. Uh, and I, to me, seeing the emergence over the last decade or so of these various outlets yeah. that you mentioned, uh, uh, Oklahoma Watch, uh, Nondoc mm-hmm. with, with Trey Savage. I, I, I've worked with them on, on a lot of things. Uh, so seeing the emergence of these, to me, it is such a positive because yeah. it gives us more of an insight into what's going on. We have a little bit better information on which to make decisions. And it's not all kind of monolithic coming out of from one voice, from one perspective. You get a variety of different things. Uh, that's the thing I think is is unique in this environment is mm-hmm. there's not this kind of group think we're all covering the same thing and we're all saying the same thing about that, right. that story, right? Yes, I appreciate that because um, we, you know, we all try to cover the same mm-hmm. news in some regard, but we all cover it in different ways. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Trace will come about it from a really deep dive sort of angle in non-doc. And I, and I can learn so much yes. from some of his articles, right, right, right. but then, you know, Oklahoma Watch may take a totally different tack to it. So yeah. I love it. Yes. No, it's it's fantastic. And it's desperately needed. Yes, so. exactly. All necessary. So let's let's talk about what, what are some of the major stories that you feel like you guys have covered yeah. up to this point? And what is it that you're looking at, you know, in the near future? Let's let's talk about a little bit. Are you okay with that? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Sure. Yeah. So um, I feel like we've so I don't I don't tend to cover education, but I feel like we've had some really good stories about Ryan Walters and his administration um, kind of peeling back the layer a little bit on the number of folks that have left the Oklahoma State Department of Education, Mm -hmm. um, some of the difficulties that folks have had in getting um, basically transparency out of the department. You know, uh, I wrote a story with our education reporter about um, Stitt's former education secretary Mm -hmm. who resigned after like three months and everybody was like, why? Where did she go? Well, it turned out she resigned because she wasn't she she couldn't get the Walters administration to give her details on their financials. Right. And she was like, I, I can't stick around if this is going to be how it is. So I had a very interesting conversation with a state legislator uh, that if I said their name, we all know. And I'm not going to because they didn't they told me this and they didn't weren't telling me this to share uh, with everybody. That But um, uh, that there has become tension between mm-hmm. Stitt and Walters. I've heard that. And part of why 
the stitch secretary of education left was she did not want to be caught in the middle of that tension. So I could see that. And I think that could play into why it's taken him so long to name a new education secretary. I mean, she resigned this summer and we're about to hit a new year. So he's got to find the right person who is okay with dealing with Walters and potentially being caught in the middle of this tension between the governor's office and OSDE. Right. So that's going to be very interesting to see how he navigates that. And because he's got a really narrow, he's going to want someone who's on board with the school choice plan. But I think he's going to want someone who can be a counterbalance somewhat to Walters as well. And I think he wants to be talking about some of the good things that are happening in Oklahoma education, right? Uh, And not be constantly accusing teachers of being closet Marxist or open Marxist, not accusing school librarians of being perverts and and such like this. Uh, Making the national news for education secretary is not great. And that's that to me, this is one of the interesting stories that recently uh, is this whole, I want to hire someone to boost my media profile, if you will. Right. Uh, Which I don't feel like he needs more boosting. Like, I mean, I saw he had an op-ed in Newsweek this week. You know, he's constantly on right wing television shows. Uh, Yeah. I think he's doing pretty good in terms of the media buying, you know. He's definitely probably runner up for at least in the running for Trump's next Secretary of Education, right? Oh, I would at think least, so. right? I, right? Yeah, I the thing with Trump is he doesn't care about any uh, he's not ideologically driven. Not at all. Right? He wants to know that you're going to scrap and fight and, and fight be out for there. him yeah. and you're going to be loyal to him. Walters and, is that. And you should not have any expectation that he's going to be loyal back, right? Or you give you accept. anything in return. That's exactly right. And so uh Walters might fit in really well there and uh, and then there might be conflict because you know Walters I get the sense is a true believer which scares me a little bit more about him. I'm going to segue my text, my, my textbook committee uh-huh. stuff in here. Can I, can oh, I segue, yes, please, yes, please. And I will try not to rant today. About no, really. That, I right? love it. So, um, so yeah. Right. So the, the listeners know that James uh, went on one uh, on the last episode because I, I was talking about your article uh, on the textbook committee and that day that we were recording, they were actually meeting. So I was kind of curious, um, what was the outcome? Do you know of the meeting? Mm-hmm. Um, and we noted that moms for Liberty, man, they were fighting those woke math books. So um, did, did were they successful, Carmen? Yeah. So Moms for Liberty was somewhat successful. Okay. So they they have taken issue with. Um, so every every cycle, the textbook committee delves into a different subject area for textbooks. And this year they're doing math textbooks. Um, and so Moms for Liberty has complained about these textbooks from McGraw-Hill, which is a major publisher across the U.S. Um, they don't like their elementary school or K- pre-K through elementary school math textbooks because they feel that the textbooks contain um, social emotional learning, which has become like the new the new CRT, basically, in conservative Mm -hmm. circles um, where you're not exactly sure what it is, but conservatives are mad about it. Right. Um, I um, we need to have somebody on who is somewhat of an expert on that and they can explain what that is. I know I have another sister who is now an assistant principal in more public schools. Mm -hmm. And so she was talking about social emotional Mm -hmm. learning and 
did not describe it at all like Wumps or Liberty described no. it. So it would be nice yeah, to have someone who can just define it. lay that yeah. out and say, here's what we're talking about. Here's how it plays yeah. out. Yeah. Here's how this might wrap into uh a math, a math book. exercise, a math or, book. or a civics exercise, or you know, social studies, or whatever. Uh, but uh, it would be nice to have a kind of an unvarnished and unbiased yeah. Oh, yeah, perspective on that. Yeah. Uh, and and so, if I'm going to critique the media, and this is not just you, but anyone <laughs> on when they cover things like those mm-hmm. topics. Nobody ever explains to me what this stuff is. Nobody ever says when when Ryan Walters goes out and is railing against CRT. And by the way, I think there are some legitimate criticisms of of that. And I think there's a lot of let me just put it this way. I don't think anybody's telling the truth, uh, regardless of what side you're on. Nobody's telling the truth about CRT, whether that's out of ignorance or whether that's out of just wanting to mislead. But nobody is. Uh, But. Uh, but you guys, I, it would be helpful if you would say, here is what CRT is yeah. and and go to a source that talks about it. So uh, that would be really helpful. And then the public can say, OK, do I like this? Do I not right. like yeah. this? Yeah. How is it trying to be applicate, sure. being applied to certain things? Right. Uh, that's my biggest criticism in some of these these discussions is. Uh, nobody's ever defining this stuff. We're just saying Ryan Walter said this, and then uh, somebody in the Democrats and the legislature said that. And I'm like, well, what the heck are they talking about? I know it's CRT, but I have no idea what that is. Yeah, that's fair. I think part of the problem is these are ill-defined yes. concepts. They're, they're you know, broad, right? Mm-hmm. And so what Ryan Walters sees as CRT may not necessarily be what like right. an African-American history professor sees right. as CRT. I, I am going to recommend, I will recommend a source to you. In fact, I'll email you. So there's a, a sociological handbook that mm-hmm. has a specific chapter written by two critical theorists on here's what CRT mm-hmm. is. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's very helpful for me into understanding what I think about it. Um, uh, but it's not written by somebody who's criticizing it, right. and it's not written in in an, an advocacy way. It's written as this is what this it is. This is what it is. Yeah. Uh, and to me, that was extremely helpful yeah. uh, in 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 understanding what is it that we're talking about. And I agree, all of these ideas that originate really with us academics, you know, <laughs> get distorted and diluted and modified by politicians who right, fit an hear agenda. something. Yeah. Uh, and, and so you are correct in the sense that everybody uses the term, but they don't use it the same way. Uh, so, so giving a baseline and saying, when, where did that come from? How did it emerge? And what are the basic uh, principles or tenets behind it? And then how are these other officials using it? How are they distorting it or modifying it or whatnot? And what's behind that distortion? To me, that is like supremely helpful. Uh, But it may not be, quite frankly, it may not be the most entertaining (laughs) news. But uh, for me, I'm I'm a nerd and I like like to be informed. And and that's where I would go. That's a good suggestion. And that, listeners, was James Davenport's rant of the day. Rant of the day. I'm sorry. (laughs) And I'm really not. Listen, I think. It it was only a mild one. It was just, it was was a soapbox, not a rant. And I think there's so much going on that it is impossible to cover everything from every angle. 
know that one of my gemstones as the burden of a democracy is on us, right? right? right. So it's also, right, whenever they define these things or whenever they uh, reference these things in the media, they can't be I mean, they can't be sure exactly what exactly uh, Walters is saying or right. or what he right. is defining. That's subjective. And so it, it becomes, you know, the onus is on you as the reader to be a critical thinker and to do exactly what you did. Go and seek out the information from a factual, just just plain, you know, the information right. standpoint. You've, you've got to do the work, though, man. You can't. The media cannot do the work they for you. They can't do it all. You've got to do the work. But you know what I have found? So what I have found is that, and I'll just give an example, one example of me personally, uh, a reporter from Tulsa, uh, the Tulsa World, I think, wrote a story on, um, um, it was really about women in the workforce and in Oklahoma, and I think it was something related to the wage gap or whatnot, uh, and uh, in the story, she had a, a line that said 50% of women in Oklahoma earn the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. I study the minimum wage, mm-hmm. and I knew immediately that was not accurate. Uh, and, I, and I had the resources ready at my disposal. I emailed her. I said, here's the BLS figures mm-hmm. for how many people in total earn the minimum wage right. in Oklahoma, which is why I know what was said the other night was not accurate. Right. Uh, uh, how many people in total earn the minimum wage in Oklahoma. And if 50% of women earn the minimum wage, that number would be way higher. And she recognized that. She said, hey, thanks for letting me know. So I have found if you reach out to journalists and you say, hey, I saw this, you might want to look at this or you might, and you're not the angry, I can't believe you're so biased and I can't believe you, you know. And I've had some back and forth with with a a journalist before where I felt like, you know, the way they characterized something wasn't wasn't fair. Um, And I've, I'm fully admit, listen, everybody's going to defend their work and I have no grudge against someone who's going to defend their work. Uh, but I have found Oklahoma journalists, by and large, if you approach them yeah. as, hey, I want to help you understand yeah. this issue better, here's some information you ought to look at, are extremely welcoming of Accessible, that. Accessible, right? And, and, right. They're not, they don't just go, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. They don't want to put out misinformation. Right. That is not what right. they're there for. And that's a really critical thing for people to understand. And I think I take a lot of th- this personally, right, personal umbrage, well, because I was in the, the Capitol Press Corps for right. a while. And so this is, right, it's something that I rail about in my classes because of the, you know, fake news, alternative facts, mm-hmm. right? The media is not there to pat your government on the back or these politicians they are there to give you news and information in a factual, nonpartisan way for you, critically thinking, cognitive human being, to put in your own political, moral, religious, whatever context, and then make actionable decisions based on that period, right? If your news is telling you how to vote, what to think, et cetera, you need to seek a different source unless you know you're reading an op-ed, right? That is... That's Dr. Stacy's soapbox yes, for the day. Right. Well, and, and journalists, we, you know, we 
we are human. We're flawed. Yes. We're going to get That's things right. wrong sometimes. Right. That happens. But we, you, all you can do is be transparent about mm-hmm. it and just do better the next time. Exactly. And, and I think uh, my interaction with the vast majority of Oklahoma journalism, journalists has been exactly that. Yes, they're, absolutely. they're like, what, you know, do you have something to offer? Yeah. What, what can we do better on? Uh, and most of them do really good work. Absolutely. Really yeah. good work. We've got lots of homies in, in the Oklahoma media. We just had Wendy Suarez from, from broadcast media to, you know, the print. And we've been, you know, really blessed to have those connections and to know these people who, you know, are in our eyes, rock stars. I mean, you guys are rock stars, you know, to have those kind of connections and to, to know you guys is, is really very cool. Um, well, thank so, you. I don't know. I like knowing you guys. I think you guys are rock stars. So. <laughs> <They try. laughs> well, Emily is, yeah. I'm kind of, the, I am the old grumpy man in the room. That's, that's my role. We so, still you know. love you. <laughs> so what other stories are you guys following or uh, do you feel like uh, this was a particularly really good one that that we really did a good job of informing people yeah. about this topic. What give us some of that? Yeah, I mean, um, I would say education's obviously going to be mm-hmm. a hot topic. Yeah. I think we've done a good job of covering education. Um, indigenous affairs yeah, is blowing up. Yeah, um, you know, I think sometimes we feel lacking as a staff because none of us are indigenous, sure. and it it can be hard to cover yeah. the indigenous communities, I should say, not community singular, but um, when you're not one of them, but I think we try to do a good job. Um, So education and then just general government stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, like whatever the heck the legislature is up to to now, (laughs) which I mean, I think next year is going to be tax cuts, maybe compacts. I don't know. Okay. I'm just going to, we've discussed this on the program before. They could have had cax cucks in their special session if the governor would have just oh, yeah. uh, talked to Greg Trees. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. From from let's get rid of the income tax to well, really, what I want is a quarter percent cut. That's a huge. What difference. were you guys doing? What was what were your thoughts? Were you there? What was? Well, what was I happening? mean, I just figured like, oh, this is just like a waste of time, yeah. right? Like, I mean, because of exactly if they had all gotten in a room, yeah. McCall. Greg Treat and um, the governor, if they'd all gotten in a room, you know, weeks before the special session, they Mm -hmm. probably could have hashed out some sort of deal and boom, had a quarter point tax cut. But, you know, for weeks leading up to the special session, the governor was not super clear on what he wanted. And then in the press conference, the morning of special session, he says, well, I'll take a quarter point cut. That's what I want. You could do that and nothing else and then leave, yeah. even though he had two other things in his special session, Paul. Right. Right. Um, there was something about transparency and all yeah. that. And it was yeah. like, uh, f- don't worry about any of that. Just give me that quarter. Yes. Quarter it's like, percent. well, why didn't you just write that in your special session? It Paul? also seemed like he continues to snub Greg Tree, right? It is very clear. And what, McCall was in that press conference, right? Next he to was. Him, and yes. Treat was not. Um, I mean, it's so it's very clear the love loss there is. Yeah, I don't I, I, I don't think that they have the best relationship anymore. I, I mean, that would just be me speculating. Sure, right, of but, course. Oh, that's all we do here. And I, I do think that they all talk. I think Speaker McCall you and have to, Treat. Right? Yeah, but, but I don't know right. that they're friendly. Well, I, it's rough. I, my perception is that uh, Treat, as the president pro tem of the Senate, does not like the governor or anybody else saying, 
I expect you to do this. Oh, now yes. go and do it. Yes. Right. And Governor yeah. Stitt definitely have this has this mentality sometimes that the legislature works for him. The businessman. Right. And right. Yeah. that's not how it works. It's at not, all. I yeah. think it's the biggest detriment to someone coming into yeah. politics who has no political experience and they're coming from that CEO background where they're used to just giving orders and those orders being followed to now I have to work with this group of 101 in the House and 48 in the Senate. And most of the 48 in the Senate think they could all do that job better than him anyway. Uh, And a lot of the folks in the House do as well. Mm -hmm. And they all have their own agendas and they all have their own constituencies. Mm -hmm. And a a governor who doesn't recognize that you've got to navigate that for a president. It, I mean, it mere, it's a para, direct parallel to the Trump it administration. Really it really it's a direct is. parallel. You have to build working coalitions yeah. Yeah, to advance your agenda. And and it does seem like Stitt has never yeah. quite learned that lesson. And it's such a great, I love pointing to this for our students, right? Because whenever you get a supermajority like that, you expect for the, the grease to, you know, all of they're going to pass everything through. They're all one color, you know, one flavor of one party, etc. Um, it's much worse. It is sometimes so much worse, right? 2010, uh, oh my God, you got Mike Reynolds and the Liberty Caucus and they, uh, you break off from the moderate Republicans and the Oklahoma State Capitol has not been the same since. The, the factions that emerge yes. out of that supermajority and and the trouble they can cause anybody yeah. who's wanting to do anything. Yeah. And uh, to me, a successful governor is going to be someone who can work with each group when they need to advance something, uh, but doesn't get too close, yeah. right? Uh, you, I think some of that is uh, if I get too close with these folks, then they're going to expect me to do certain yeah. things or I'm going to expect them to do certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, I, I very much view treat as we are the Senate. Yeah. We have an agenda. If you want us to be part of your agenda, you need to come to us and you need to work with us. And and uh, and. I just haven't seen the governor respond to that in a positive way. There was a little bit of uh, pontification last night at the event about the good old days of the Capitol when uh, we had a, a split majority, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the Senate was split, uh, and you had co-chairs, and it was incredible, right, between the two parties. And um, I remember being in the press room multiple times, one one session where the Democrats um, would would uh, group together um, with the Republicans, or some Republicans would break off, and they'd walk out, just deuce out of the chamber and not vote. It was, I, those were the good old days, man. You can't, you don't, you don't get that kind of well, stuff anymore. You're, you're forced to learn how to work across the aisle, right? In that kind of good environment. Stuff. Not anymore. No, Not no, in Oklahoma the, anyways. The, you're not. Now, what is interesting is there is some alliance, not based on a uh, unified perspective, but a, but similar goals in that sometimes you see some, with some of those really, really conservative Republicans voting with Democrats because they both oppose what the majority is trying to do, what the leadership is trying to do. They oppose for different reasons. Like abortion type stuff. You know, the far right folks in the legislature will vote against it because it doesn't go far enough. And then Democrats will go vote against some of these anti-abortion measures because they go too Too far far. in their opinion. Exactly. Exactly. So it is, it is a fascinating uh, environment to watch. And uh, I think people who don't understand how legislative bodies work sometimes don't understand why these outcomes occur, which is why you're so yes. important because you Try can help explain, explain it some of that to, to people, right? That, I don't know. I have days where I'm like, I don't know what's going on uh, up listen, here. I, I, we have all had those those days of what the heck is going on, right? Absolutely. <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, I think next year will be very interesting. I mean, well, uh, it'll be Greg Treats last year is leading the Senate. McCall's last year leading the House, and change elections. And then you know, so the the House is going to lose at least two of its top three leaderships. So McCall turns out, John Eccles turns out. Uh, I'm not sure if, if anybody else in, in the, the that kind of leadership group does. Uh, as you mentioned, Treat does. Um, and yeah, who's going to fill in those slots? And well, I think we're going to see some infighting amongst yeah. the caucuses. Well, you did. You kind of had, the, again, this kind of insurgency of Rob Standridge, mm-hmm. who was going to challenge Treat yeah. for uh, the pro temp slot this year. And that didn't that didn't pan yeah. out for him. Yeah. But Treat's not going to be there yeah, again. Right. And so that's going to be really interesting to see who who is able to to garner enough votes to, to take that and, position. And it could be interesting to see if Governor Stitt gets involved yeah, in, like, right. you know, leadership elections to see yeah. if he tries to guide the bodies to elect somebody he might work better with. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, I would be, if I'm governor, I'm going to be hesitant to do that. Yeah, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't. I, you know, well... But, but I'm not governor. governor so. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. So, but uh, yeah, um, what else is uh, what else is going on uh, in the state? So we've got all of these different state agencies. We have the Corporation Commission that uh, has actually been strangely out of the news a whole lot. It really lately. has. There was a period of, of two or three years that felt like they were in the news constantly. Especially with it seems like going things have, have yeah. quieted down a little bit. I know there's the deal. Over the so Drummond is is that right? Do I remember this right? Drummond has filed a lawsuit or is looking at filing a lawsuit uh, against uh, some of the energy companies Mm -hmm. for the whole uh, winter crisis. Yes, a couple years ago that may have overcharged. Right. Um, Yeah, but he's still looking at filing the lawsuit. That's why he subpoenaed the Corporation Commission recently. But I think that was kind of the last big news out of there. I mean, I I think part of the problem is it's very the corporation commission is such a complicated beast and there are very few people who know how to cover it correctly Mm -hmm. you know like a rate increase you know tv reporters everybody can cover that but like you get into some of this nitty-gritty stuff Mm -hmm. that the corpcom does and it's like what (laughs) sean ashley what used to be the like everything the brain trust for corpcom ugh awful. <laughs> uh, another organization that has been somewhat out of the news lately, this is probably a good thing, is like a DHS, right? DHS yeah. has really quieted down, yeah. There's not been a lot going on there. I remember, again, uh, this was right as Stitt had come in, was first elected or something, where there's a whole issue of they'd claimed to have lost $30 million or something, or needed $30 million. And oh, then well, all that of was a sudden, the health department. Well, that, okay, yeah, yes. right, right, yeah. Because the they department. had that slush, yeah. I mean, doing this, air yes. quotes, <laughs> slush fund of like, <laughs> yeah, and that was a whole mess. Yeah, so. Um, But yeah, the health department's kind of quieted down too. I mean, it's it's kind of funny. Now, it's, I'm wondering, is is it the fact that, that things have quieted down in those areas, or is it just Walter's the fact so loud. that... What's happening in the State Department of Education mm-hmm. is just consuming all the oxygen in the room, right? And and it, it is so loud and it is mm-hmm. so in, in your face and it forces you guys to cover it because of the way uh, that all of that's being handled that the attention that might be devoted to these other areas just is not there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's both. I think the news ebbs and flows at various sure. state agencies. Right. You'll have some agencies that become really contentious or dramatic, and that'll be a thing for six months and die out. But, uh, you know, 
Brian Walters is sucking a lot of the oxygen out of the room. And I, I really wish is like as a journalism community that the Oklahoma media could have like a broader discussion on like, it's like, I see a lot of reporters doing everything that went wrong with covering Trump. You know, it's like, Oh, okay. You know, the dude tweets something and you write a story about it every time he tweets something crazy. And then he realizes he gets free media attention and is on the news every night because he tweets crazy things. And so like, maybe we should reevaluate how we cover this person. And I, I think that's a very valid criticism. I thought one of the reasons why the criticisms of Trump were not as effective as they might be is there were just so many uh, and there was no perception of proportionality, right? Everything he did wrong was all the worst thing in the world and it all just became noise at some point. And I, and I, and I think uh, we run the risk of doing that in this this situation as well as it all just becomes background noise and and such. And so I don't know, but I think that is. So I have a couple of questions for you. Shoot. All right. Do I have 10 minutes? We've been, yeah, oh this is, gosh. I know. Good conversation. I know. We're wrap this has this been wonderful. Really but, Usually but I'm questions. the one on top of the time, but now, yeah. you know, so. I know we're having a good time clearly. Yes. Um, all right. So what's the one thing you wish the general public knew about the work journalists do yes. that they don't? What's the one misperception or the misunderstanding about your job that you wish the public knew more about? I hate this criticism that we're like, you know, we're somehow an enemy, uh-huh. right? Like the, what Trump has branded us as an enemy of the people. But really, if anything, we're there to shed light on government, how it works, how it's spending your tax dollars for the public. We are, if anything, we are a fighter for the public. We are the people you didn't elect to go up to the Capitol (laughs) and spend way too many hours up there digesting for you what your lawmakers did and and serving it to you in a condensed, readable format or 30-second TV broadcast or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I I know that there is this animosity toward Uh the press. Um, I you know, I wish they weren't there. I wish there were more lawmakers, more elected officials that, you know, would not lean into that, yeah. into vilifying us because, you know, we're, we're just, we're just up there doing our job and our job is to promote a good and healthy democracy. Yes. yes. I don't have time for this. So let me add, just go ask. I, there's another co- whole role I could have went with just that last <laughs> we'll, comment. We'll have her back. I, right? We're already planning. We're planning. Absolutely. Last question. Um, I asked this of our media panel at OPSA, and I'm really interested is what has been the biggest challenge, do you think, to doing your job that has emerged yeah. over the last decade or so? And then what has also been uh, the biggest uh, positive change in the way journalism is conducted that, that you think? Positive change. We have to think on that one. Okay. But um, the hardest thing is, you know, going back to sort of this idea that the press is somehow vilified as the villain in all of this. It is, is I feel like it is harder as the years go on okay. to get people on the phone or to get certain certain elected officials to talk to you yeah. because, you know, they might be ultra conservative or far far right. And they may just think, oh, you're the media. I don't want to talk to you. And that's fine. You know, you don't want to talk to us. I can still do my job, whether you talk to me or not. But I think there's this lack of mutual understanding. Like if you can't see me as a person and we can't have a conversation in a hallway about, you know, even if it's just pleasantries, how's your family? How are my dogs? You know, like 
we lose sight of each other and why we're there and why we're doing it. Um, Positives about journalism. I will say, I do think that during COVID that the Oklahoma like journalist group, uh, journalists in Oklahoma really rallied around each other. Mm -hmm. Um, One, because, you know, we were all working during COVID. It was kind of miserable. We're all stuck working from home and we're working more and harder than we were in the past. It created mental health issues, you know, I think, but I, I just felt like, you know, reporters were standing up for each other, backing each other's work. And I think that that's been really nice to see, especially, you know, when we have all these, you know, different publications that, you know, tackle the news differently, that we're all, you know, at our heart working together. That's fantastic. Very good. Well, Carmen Foreman from Oklahoma's Voice, thank you for joining us today. This has been a fantastic conversation. We will have you back very soon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's been our pleasure. Thanks to everybody who's listening. And uh, just remember, uh, democracy is not a spectator sport. It is not. All right. So we'll see you next time. We love communication that goes both ways, not just you listening to us pontificate. We would love to hear from our audience. If you have comments, suggestions, or would like to contact us about possibly being a guest on the show, please email notmygeneration at raider.rose.edu.